Greetings and welcome to The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. My name is Larry Beckwith. On this episode of the show, I'll be speaking with Victoria-based tenor Benjamin Butterfield about his recent activities as a teacher and performer, including his contribution to the Confluence John Beckwith songbook shows. Anais Kelsey Verdecchia is a young singer from Toronto who has familial roots in Argentina. She and curator Patricia O'Callaghan recently sat down for a conversation about their collaboration on Gracias a la Vida. And we'll begin with an interview with the Canadian novelist and poet Stephen Hyten from Kingston about his new recording of original songs entitled The Devil's Share. Those conversations, a look ahead to our May festival, and a whole lot more on this month's edition of The Fuse. Hello. I hope this finds all of you doing well as we continue to endure the lockdown and isolation. I know that it can be tough without the regular contact and stimulation of cultural events and live human interaction. We've been trying at Confluence Concerts to contribute as we can to the musical life of the city and beyond. Since our last episode, we've broadcast a few programs on our YouTube channel and are looking forward to a sort of season retrospective by way of our May Festival. I'll give you more details about that a little later on in the program. To begin with, my first guest on this episode of The Fuse is the well-known Kingston-based poet and novelist Stephen Hyten. Stephen is the author of The Waking Comes Late, which received the 2016 Governor General's Award for Poetry, and the novel Afterlands, which appeared in six countries, was a New York Times book review editor's choice, and was a best-of-year selection in 10 publications in Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. Afterlands has been optioned for film by Pal Grimson and is in pre-production. Stephen has also published The Shadow Boxer, a favorite book of mine, and a number of other books of fiction and poetry. His most recent works are Selected Poems, 1983-2020, to Reaching Mythmina, Among the Volunteers and Refugees on Lesvos, which was a finalist for the Writers' Trust Hillary Weston Prize, and an album of original songs, The Devil's Share, which is specifically what I wanted to speak with him about on this program. Stephen Hyten, welcome to The Fuse. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Larry. You know, I know you as a tremendously creative person. It seems to me like you're always writing and you're always producing um, both fiction and poetry, and now music. This this beautiful album, uh, "The Devil's Share," which we'll talk about uh, in a minute. Um, but I, I wanted to begin by asking you how this isolated time, this depressing time, this uh, strange time, uh, how is that affecting your creativity? Uh, it, it hasn't really changed my art, you know artistic practice, which involves sitting down and working 
writing uh, seven, seven days a week, all year round. It hasn't changed that, but it certainly lent uh, an urgency to it, partly because like, like almost every artist in the country, I think my, my income is either going down or it's going to go down. I can see that not, not much is coming in this year. I can see that in advance. So that adds urgency to uh, say short story writing. I get, I can try to sell a story in Canada, the States and Britain, and it's, you know, modest fees, maybe 300 to $600 each time, but that, it kind of adds up. So it's added urgency. And in that sense, it has been useful. I've actually been really disciplined for the last year and I've gotten a lot done. And I also have to say, I, I felt kind of guilty about it all because the lockdown has not been, other than adding some financial urgency, it hasn't been uh, onerous or difficult for me because there's a sense in which I've been locked down for years just working on books. Like I like to have my whole, I, mean, I like to have the whole day alone. In the evening, I like seeing people. I'm missing that that to some extent, but on the whole, my days haven't really changed. I feel a little guilty about how little the lockdown has affected me on that level. And uh, and what about the themes of, uh, you know, do you read the newspaper every day or do you avoid it or, um... Uh, I mean, I, I, I guess, uh, you know, this is interesting for me just talking to you because I know that you, I think it's fair to say that in your writing, you don't shy away from dark themes and, and, right. um, and this is a dark time that we're living in. And I, I wonder if that, does that affect you? Does that affect your writing? That certainly has affected uh, me and my writing. Uh, I, and yeah, I do read the news, news, not three times a day, like in 2020, but still at least once a day. So I'm locked down, but I'm not isolated in that sense. Um, and of course, yeah, I've been following uh, all the major stories of the last year. And sorry, I've lost- It's just the darkness of okay, the time, okay. I guess. Right. And, yeah. What, what I wanted to say is that is also getting into the writing. And I'm now working on- two short stories uh, for a future collection that are set during the lockdown and they very much have a lot to do with that sort of dystopic atmosphere, which I thought was especially strong last March when the first lockdown occurred. If you remember, I mean, for a couple of weeks, Kingston was just dead silent. Um, mm. There would seem to be no cars on the road. People actually were staying home as instructed, whereas now they're not at all. Mm -hmm. So it was a very different feeling and two stories now have come out of that time and more may come and the, the you know the pandemic the covid crisis even got into a song i'd been working on for a couple of years uh kind of a reply to leonard cohen called 2020 and in the end you know the word quarantine the idea of quarantine became part of one verse which hadn't had that idea in it so it has certainly crept into my into my writing and, and songwriting in a in a big way i think so 2020 is one of the songs on uh, this this record, The Devil's Share. In fact, it's sort of the epic on that, <laughs> on that album. <laughs> I, I, uh, I have to say, I haven't listened to the whole thing, but I listened to, I would say, the first half. And uh, it's beautiful. And it, there are echoes of, of Leonard Cohen. There are echoes of Bob Dylan. There are, um, and yet it is a, it is a very fresh and... Um, and new sound to the whole record. So first of all, congratulations. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece. Thank you. Um, Thanks very and, much. and I also think you and I, well, you and I know each other because of a lot of things, but you know, we've kind of come together occasionally around music and around musical projects. Um, and I don't know whether it would be, it would be a surprise to your 
you know, to followers of, of can lit and Canadian literature to know that you are, uh, you know, you have such a background in music as well. I wonder if you could just talk about your, your history with music and music making. Well, I have a background in music in the sense that I've been doing it for a long time, but I, you know, as you'll know from hearing me on that record, I'm a limited musician. I think the songs are really good and I'm proud of them. Uh, and, And I think I can, I can more or less hit the notes and and I think in the singer songwriter tradition that's okay you, you don't have to be a trained singer in fact sometimes if a trained singer delivers a certain kind of song it doesn't quite sound right there's a there's a kind of disjunction there um, but I, the background yeah it goes back a long way in high school uh, and into my early 20s um, the art I aspired to was songwriting I wanted to be a singer songwriter and I you know I busked uh, around the world um, you know, I mean, traveled around the world with the guitar busking to, to sort of make my way. And uh, I was writing some songs and the standard story I tell now, because it sounds, it's a sort of neat and elegant, uh, though it turns out to be untrue, is that as the years went by and I went to university and started reading a lot of poetry, I realized that the lyrics were better than the melodies. And I, then I focused on becoming a poet and then a short story writer, etc. Uh, and then just stopped playing guitar for years and years, lost the calluses on my fingers and all that. But, you know, I, I recently realized that this story I've been telling when people ask, why are you making an album? is simply not true. I went back to some of those early songs. The lyrics were shit. <laughs> but, the, but the melodies are actually kind of fresh. And right. to my surprise, I even found chord changes. And I thought I didn't even know I knew those chords, you know, when I was 19 or 20. But that's a really kind of fresh chord change. I'm using some major seventh chords and I didn't think I ever used that. I thought I just used, you know, the five or six standard chords. Mm-hmm. So what I discovered was I actually always had an ear for melody and my lyrics were actually really bad. And I think what's happened over the last few decades is that I've just gotten better as a poet. So now I can write lyrics and also start going back to those early melodies and writing new ones. So, yeah, I have that background. Uh, and of course, you and I worked on a couple of collaborative projects, which were really great. Uh, being around professional musicians is is one of the. In fact, I think working, uh, being with you uh, when James Rolfe was, uh, was was working on. Oh, what was sorry? What was the piece? Europa, uh, uh, Europa and the Europa, White Pool. Yeah. yeah. Watching him work on Europa and and you working with you in that room, that might have been one of the turning points that sent me back towards music because. Just watching him, uh, and he, you know, he came up with the, the tunes so quickly, and and they're beautiful. Uh, and, and just seeing seeing him try to work with the words, uh, thinking about uh, you know how words could be phrased. And you explained to me how the word "bull," which <laughs> is really hard to sing, and it occurs over and over again. And I realized, as as a young singer, aspiring singer songwriter, I, I never even thought about that. Now I realized, yes, that's a hard word to sing. So. Yeah. Anyway, it was fascinating. And, and that process may have helped turn me towards, I mean, when did we do that? Three years ago? Oh boy. You Four know, years. it's nearly, I guess it's about eight years ago now. If <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got that so wrong. I think it was 2013, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. That makes sense. So I was wrong by like five years. Okay. <laughs> but I started writing songs again in 2014. So I, I really do attribute it partly to that experience. Um, just being That's around great. musicians. That's great. And, and can you talk a bit about the recording process of, of this, uh, of this album? I, I notice it's, well, was it done on Wolf Island or, or 
Yeah, it's done in uh, the post office studio. It is an old post office uh, run by Hugh Christopher Brown, who uh, was in the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir, Bare Naked Ladies, and so on. He's a, a wonderful musician and producer. And uh, it, this is basically his living space. So it, it's an unconventional studio. His neighbor's dog was usually there on the rug at my feet while I tried to learn how to use a microphone and sing properly. It was a very steep learning curve. And frankly, it was terrifying at first because if you walk away or say flee from some kind of calling uh, when you're young, to come back to it years later when you're no longer young, it's kind of terrifying. It feels like, you know, it's your second time in the Grail Castle, so to speak, to go back to the Gowan myth. And this time you've got to, you've got to do it. And I just didn't think I could. I didn't know if I could. He kept saying, no, no, you got this. You got this. You're okay. Um, and, you know, when I hear now, when I hear the bed tracks from a year ago and the final tracks, I realized I actually learned a lot about singing just by having to do it into a microphone and, um, you know, also remembering some of the advice uh, you and, and James were giving about, you know. And, and what about the musicians that, uh, that you worked with in the, in the project? Are they, are they uh, collab frequent collaborators of yours? Yeah, the collaborators are actually not my collaborators, but they're, they're Chris Brown's collaborators. Many of them live on the island in, in, in including like right on the street he's on. We call it Music Music City Row. Uh, there's several in the bassist live ne lives next door. He's a fantastic musician. Taylor Frost, who's a well-known local percussion, ter terrific percussionist and banjo player. Didn't let him play banjo on the record, for the record, uh, just to be clear about that. So um, plays percussion. And uh, Jason Mercer is the bassist. He plays, he's Ron Sexsmith's bassist. Absolutely wonderful full player and he just I, I i when i re-listen to the songs i'm listening above all for his bass playing and chris's piano uh, also on the liner notes in one place it says uh stephen Hyten guitars and vocal tony sheer better guitar um because <laughs> there's one song where my picking sounds way better and i finally realized oh no that's tony sheer <laughs> you know, supporting me he's a new york uh session musician bass player and guitarist wonderful so again, this was all uh, all new to me. Um, and uh, Kevin Bauer has played on the record. He is a local uh, electric guitarist. I have jammed with him a few times, but other than that, these these collaborations were all new to me. Wow. Um, and one thing that I found fascinating, I mean, the lyrics are are obviously you built them for songs, and and I'm wondering if there's a different way. I mean, you talked about being being um, kind of nudged towards writing poetry in your earlier years through your songwriting. Um, but, but now, you know, when you sit down to write a song, do you, do you approach the, the lyrics different than differently than you would if you were writing a poem? Well, yes, but in a way I approach the lyrics the way I always wanted to approach poetry. One of the things I didn't like about contemporary poetry when I started writing and publishing poems in the mid eighties is that it, I felt it lacked music. That's how I expressed the idea. I also meant rhyme, but rhyme was such a dirty word at that point that you couldn't even say it without seeming, for some reason people tended to associate in those days, uh, the use of rhyme and traditional versifying techniques with right-wing politics. 
I, I guess because it's more constrictive, interesting, uh, constrictive, yeah. constrictive and constraining. I don't know. To me, it, it's a it's a really fatuous and uh, and and specious analogy. Uh, and I always wanted to write more musically and even use rhyme when it was appropriate. I finally hit on uh, slant rhyme, consonantal rhyme, where the consonants rhyme. So like swan and soon and uh, rhyme, those would be three slant rhymes. And they will also work on the uh, reader's ear uh, and they can work in songs as well. Um, but I always wanted to write in rhyme. I eventually got back to it with slant rhyme uh, and I simply stopped caring what people thought about my using rhyme or writing in sonnets when that was appropriate. But <clears throat> one of the wonderful things about coming back to songwriting, besides feeling like a beginner again, which is a wonderful feeling, is uh, being able to write, you know, shamelessly in in rhyme, uh, and just just loving it. Um, well, I, you know, I, I could I could go on with with you. It's very interesting talking about this this particular project, but I'm wondering if you uh, if you have any other. I mean, you've talked about writing short stories and and that you're continuing your prolific um, activities. Uh, these days, do you have any plans to maybe tour with a little band or and and tour this album? Yeah, that is in the works or in the plans, and we just, of course, we're just waiting to see what happens with this uh, with this crisis. Um, Hugh Christopher Brown wants to set up some readings uh, starting in Kingston, then elsewhere in Canada, and also he has uh, connections in Holland, where, where and Ireland, where we're his musicians uh the people he produces will tend to to play so i'm hoping that will all happen you know maybe in the summer if we're really lucky maybe in the fall maybe it won't happen at all and if that's the case well you know there's nothing to be done about it but i, I hope i hope it happens i'm terrified on one level it's been years since i've actually played in front of people except at parties you know but at the same time I, i've learned as uh as a writer that you have to go towards whatever terrifies you and that's where the discoveries are. That's where the that's where the improvement lies. Uh, and failure can be the making of you if you let it be. Right. And uh, I've I've always been prepared to fail and learn from it. So I, I expect my first show is going to be a bit of a shit show, but that's okay. We get past it, and uh, then they'll get better and better. Well, I hope you'll come to Toronto, and uh, if 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 Confluence can be of any help in terms of uh, presenting or. Um, or uh, providing an audience, we, we'd certainly love to to collaborate. Well, you you don't have to provide provide an audience. Provide real singers who, who can deliver <laughs> my songs on another level. Uh, you know, like you. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. I'm struggling, I'm struggling to hit the the high notes on my record when it, when I go into that tenor range. I pretty much have to go falsetto. You can do it true. So <laughs> it'd be wonderful to hear you do one or two of them. Um, is there is there a new novel? in the works or in the plans? If I'm lucky, I will never write another novel. Uh, novels are impossible and they, by the end, my spirit is just destroyed and I feel like defenestrating myself. Unfortunately, I live on the first floor of this apartment. So if I defenestrate myself, I'd only get you know mildly injured. But it, no, seriously, it's, uh, they're just impossible. And it, I found finishing the last book uh, a real ordeal. If I can, keep writing short stories and songs and maybe another memoir like Reaching Mythen, a book I published last year, which was an, actually a memoir. Uh, I, I think I'd rather do that for now. I expect there's another novel lurking in my future at some point, And I, at some point, I'm going to have to ride that wolf. 
but for now I'm, I'm saying no for the next year I want to write songs and short stories well thank you whatever you write it's uh it's wonderful to read and and it's been a, a great pleasure getting to know the devil share and and this uh this other side of you the singer songwriter so thank oh, you for baby. thank you for joining me today Thanks very much, Larry. Hope to see you again before too long in, in the aftertimes. Canadian novelist, poet, and songwriter Stephen Hyten. And from his new record, here is New Year's Song. Now I understand the altar call I've been that close to dying Now I read the rabbi's moving lips On the sickbed where he's lying And the refugee adrift at sea When it seems no God's replying Repeat the call, I swear that I'll Come forward bent and crying Now I know the man who turns to pills His life left unattended The punch-drunk boxer broods alone He once was a contender And another love so deeply She's completely undefended Call, I swear that I'll come forward and surrender Now I understand the priest who fears He sold his flock of fable The man who bets his hopes and debts With no aces for the table Girl who comes to friends with song Though she's scared and barely stable Repeat the call I swear that I'll Come forward if I'm able I once believed in love received You saved by the love they gave you Now I see it the other way Yeah, only love you give can save you Now I understand the gospel choir And the Muslim cantor singing The chant of freedom marches when The bells of change are ringing
That was New Year's Song from Stephen Hyten's album The Devil's Share, available through Bandcamp or the Wolf Island Records website. You're listening to The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. My name is Larry Beckwith. I hope you were able to join us recently for Gracias a la Vida, curated by our wonderful artistic associate Patricia O'Callaghan and featuring a wide array of amazing performing artists. It's a tribute to the Argentine musical giants Astor Piazzolla and Mercedes Sosa and is available now on the Confluence Concerts YouTube channel. One of Patricia's guests on the concert is the young singer Anais Kelsey Verdecchia, and the two of them sat down for a Zoom conversation in the days leading up to the online concert. Patricia began by asking Anais what her personal connection is to Argentina. Right. Um, well, I'm uh, half Argentinian. My father was born in Buenos Aires. Um, my grandparents are from there. Um, yeah, if you go back a couple generations, it becomes sort of Spain and Italy. But uh, yeah, the last couple generations of my family are Argentinian. Have you spent any time there? Unfortunately, no. My uh, my dad and I have wanted to go together for quite a long time, but so far it hasn't worked out that we've both been able to go. So I have yet to actually go back to uh, to the motherland. <laughs> Hopefully the timing will happen at just the right time and it'll be wonderful when it happens, I'm sure. Yeah, very um, excited. So, okay, uh, I understand. I think we were chatting uh and you mentioned that at some point, I think it was in high school, you wanted to find out more about your roots there. And was it a school project you did on Piazzolla? Yeah, so um, we had a project where we had to bring in a piece of music that was meaningful to us uh, and play it for the class or a recording or um, or if you were able to do it live, that was, that was encouraged. But I brought in a recording. Um, I chose to to bring in a tango, a piazzolla tango, um, because that year uh, it was sort of a, a year of self discovery. Kind of, I um, I read my father's play, which was published the year I was born. It's called Fronteras Americanas, um, American Border. I read it, and it kind of sparked this um, real curiosity about that half of my family and that sort of history and. Uh, yeah, so I, I started listening, listening to a lot of tango and a lot of Argentinian folk music and um, yeah, brought in a tango and and sort of spoke to my class a little bit about that kind of music. And it wasn't, I think it was new for a lot of people. So it was an interesting. I'm curious, do you remember which tango it was that you brought in? Uh, Adios Nonino, the, uh-huh. the piece he wrote for his father. Yeah, that's yeah. an amazing piece of music, which he wrote in, I think, half an hour or something like that. Yeah, I think like that was that. the claim. Yeah. And yeah. then he spent the rest of his career trying to write another Adios Nonino. <laughs> anyway, yeah, wonderful. Okay, thanks for that story. Um, how about Mercedes Sosa? Um, what's you or your family's connection with her or her music? I mean, similarly, obviously, Mercedes Sosa is a huge figure in the lives of, I would say, most Argentinians. Um, and especially for someone like my father who was born there and left because of the political and social climate in the 60s. Um, you know, my grandparents emigrated because of that. And I think for a lot of people who have that story, Sosa is like particularly 
powerful. That folklorica music is particularly powerful um, because it speaks to sort of the struggle of, of being there, living there, um, having that be your, your background, your culture. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the whole Nueva Cancion movement, it just, there was no separation between, you know, being a singer and singing about what was happening politically in the world. It just, it had to be, had to be sung. It had to be voiced and she's such mm -hmm. a great voice for it. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to deviate just a little bit from the program and the repertoire, just to ask you, uh, as a young singer, just coming out of university, what's it like um, in this particular climate, in the state we find ourselves in, do you find um, your ideas about what your career or your future might be, do you find that things have changed for you in the last, say, year and a half? In some ways, yes, they have changed. Uh, and in other ways, it sort of reaffirmed what I sort of early in my education and, and um, I guess in a, in a more idealistic sort of mindset, like as a in my late teens, at the beginning of my undergraduate degree, I felt very like, as I'm sure a lot of musicians and students do, like very hopeful about this chapter of my life and very kind of inspired and like, thinking about all oh, the wonderful projects I'm going to do, the beautiful music I'm going to create. And then I think there's an unfortunate thing that sometimes happens when you go to school, which is that that inspiration and that excitement gets a little bit, um, a little bit squished down or a little bit dampened or, um, you know, and that can leave, that can leave kind of a sad, yeah, it's kind of a sad feeling to graduate and feel like, okay, you've accomplished this amazing thing. But what's been sort of reinforced is this one particular career, this one particular way of being a musician. Um, That's true. And I think, yeah, I think for a while I, I did sort of subscribe to that idea of like, okay, well, there's these right steps that you have to take and then, then that's it. Then that's your career and that's what you do. And I think with the pandemic being sort of forcibly removed from those kinds of pursuits, like you know, going out auditioning, have church gigs, um, teaching, anything like that, yeah. being sort of forced to stop that and, and take, take time and take a step back and go, well, what kind of music do you actually want to make? What kind of artists do you want to work with? What kind of artists do you want to be? In a way, I'm, I'm very, I'm not grateful for the situation as a whole. I'm grateful personally for the time that it allowed me to sort of get back to that place of like, um, I think childlike excitement and, and inspiration about music again. Yeah. And, and reevaluating. I, I mean, I remember, you know, I came from far Northern Ontario, I, I, you know, I knew nothing of the city. And so university was a big deal for me in terms of exposure to a lot of things. And, and I remember that feeling of, of sort of a loss of innocence that you describe, you know, you're learning about your craft and your voice and, you're gaining all this great knowledge, but you're also like, it's kind of a rude awakening. And in particular, you know, I, we both went to University of Toronto. It, it's a very strict classical training in a lot of ways. And I think maybe both you and I don't necessarily fit into that little box perfectly. Um, 
And so a lot of it is about, okay, this is what I must do. This is what I must do. And when I got out, I, I sort of rebelled a bit against that. And I just went, I'm going to do what I want to do musically. I mean, part of me thought I'm going to do a traditional operatic career, this, 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 and this. And then that clearly wasn't for me. I moved to Europe and, and, and it's interesting that you say it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for you to take this time and just go, what is it I really want to do? Because the classical training, although it can provide, I mean, it provides an absolutely necessary bedrock for being a professional musician, I think, but it can also be very hemming in and you can think, oh, this is the only thing I can do. Mm -hmm. And in a way it's like Astor Piazzolla, right? He, he decided I have to be, I'm sick of the tango. I've been playing it since I was a kid. I know all the tangos by heart. I want to be a classical composer. Um, I've won this wonderful competition. I'm going to study with Nadia Boulanger. And then he gets there and she's like, yeah, take out your bandoneon. I want to hear a tango. And, yeah. and he plays her one and she's like, that's you. That's who you are as a composer. And Consequently, he changed the tango forever, you know, uh, because he melded those two things. And, and it's so important for a musician to find their place in the world by finding exactly who they are, who they want to collaborate with. And I think more and more, we're just not going to fit into those little roles of, you know, I'm going to be a coloratura soprano doing this repertoire. Like it just doesn't really exist anymore. So what kind of opportunities do you see for yourself and as a, as a young musician and artist? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, it's a hard question. And it's hard in a different way than it used to be. I think that question used to be difficult because I had been, I'd been so hard on myself and so kind of, committed to this idea that I thought I was going to follow what my career was going to look like um, and then when it seemed like not not a good fit it felt like a real failure um, wow. so it felt like there was nothing I was going to be able to do or you know um, you know maybe I wasn't going to be a musician yeah. all those kind of questions um, but now it's kind of the other side I almost feel like I love doing sort of more traditional gigs I still love opera that has a very special place in my heart um I have a church job that I love yeah. I've done some really incredible choral music and and love that um I've tried my hand at conducting a little bit um I've done a bit of writing like I really feel like a sort of blossoming like very much like I could sort of pick any one of those avenues and I'm fortunate to know a lot of really incredible musicians both sort of people around my age and a lot of people who have more established careers um, who have always been really willing to sort of let me pick their brain or uh, offer their expertise, um, which has been super helpful. Just even the few times I've put on sort of concerts of my own like music that I'm interested in or music that I've written, I've been really fortunate to have a lot of um, guidance from people. So that's been, it's been really good. And it kind of makes me feel like I could, could do more of that, could do more uh, branching out, more development, more, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Oh, that's so great and exciting to hear. It's, I think that's exactly where you want to be, you know, and you are all of those things, a writer, and, and there's no need to limit yourself to just one. And, and yeah, of course, like choral music, opera, that 
that's part of our foundation now, right? It's part of who we are, even if we don't follow a totally strictly classical career, it will always influence, you know, our aesthetic. And, and that's a wonderful thing. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yay. Yeah. And it's very inspiring. Like this concert in particular, like being able to perform in a sort of, in a non-classical whatever. I hate yeah. that kind of terminology, but no, no, to perform yeah to perform something that's not opera or art song and like get to experience a different part of my voice and um work with it in public in a way that I haven't in a long time like and to be performing the music of these incredibly inspiring people like to look at Piazzolla's career that I think that's just such a great example you can never know what you're going to do you can never you can plan a step ahead you can try but you know next thing you know Nadia Boulanger is telling you like yeah go back to tango and then you go back (laughs) so it's I think it's that's just such a such a wonderful example of like trying too hard to fit into that place that you just don't belong or to like make something that your heart isn't really in it's just a waste of your your resources and your gifts I think yeah well I'm I mean you sound like someone who is so wise for their years to me I mean I think that's such a great place to be and I feel like it took me so long to get there I'm like I I was in a you know a sort of a similar place after university but I'm like 25 years older than you so the world was so different when I came out I mean it was never an easy career to try and be a singer but you know I dedicated 30 years of my life to strict vocal classical training and thought that that's how I would free up my voice. And then I found myself in yet another box, like maybe a slightly more expanded box than the one of my heavy metal days of high school, but still a box, right? And then you're like, oh, okay. So there's not maybe a necessarily right or wrong way to sing. There are just options and we want options and we don't want to limit ourselves. Yeah. For sure. Anyway, well, it's been so lovely to chat with you and find out a bit more about you and where you're at. And um, I wish you all the best. I'm so looking forward to watching and, and listening to this concert online. And I can I can scarcely believe that you are the age you are with the the richness of color and maturity in your voice. It's really impressive. It's exciting. Well, thank, you. thank you. You're welcome. And thanks for chatting with me. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been great. A beautiful conversation there between Confluence Artistic Associate Patricia O'Callaghan and the young Toronto-based singer Anais Kelsey Verdecchia. From the show Gracias a la Vida, here is Anais to sing a song made famous by Mercedes Sosa entitled Canción con Todos, Song with Everyone. Toda la piel de América en mi piel y 
sangre un río que libera en mi voz su caudal. Sol de alto Perú, rostro Bolivia, estaño es soledad. Un verde Brasil, bésame Chile, cobre mineral. Subo desde el sur hasta la entraña América y total. Hondo raíz de un rito destinado a crecer y a estellar. Todas las voces, todas, todas las manos, todas, toda la sangre puede ser canción en el viento. Canta conmigo, canta, hermano Canción con Todos from Gracias a la Vida, the latest online concert from Confluence Concerts and featuring the wonderful young singer Anais Kelsey Verdecchia, pianist Robert Courtgard, and bassist arranger Andrew Downing. You are listening to The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. My name is Larry Beckwith. It's been an unusual season, to say the least, but we have been soldiering on and producing online concerts with the help of the fabulous Confluence Artistic Associates and recording engineer extraordinaire Ed Hanley. These concerts will be strung together into a retrospective, which we are calling our May Festival, beginning on Monday, May 10th, with the Walter Unger Salon, Aging and Creativity, and continuing May 12th with the Billy Strayhorn Celebration, May 14th with Mandela, Three Nights, May 16, 17, and 18 for the John Beckwith Songbook, and concluding May 20th with Gracias a la Vida. Please join us for these premieres or enjoy the concerts as they will be available for 48 hours after their premiere time. In addition, I wanted to draw your attention to the release of a two-CD solo organ recording by the great Canadian organist Matthew Larkin on the Atma Classique label. This is a Confluence-produced recording and features the magnificent organ of St. Paul's Bloor Street here in Toronto. The CD will be released a little later in May, but if you're interested in obtaining a copy, you can order one through Confluence Concerts by sending an email to info at confluenceconcerts.ca. 
My final guest on this episode is an old and dear friend, the redoubtable, energetic, brilliant Canadian tenor, Benjamin Butterfield. Ben has maintained an active performing career for the past 30 years. He enjoys a diverse repertoire in opera, oratorio, and song, both in live concert and on recordings. And he's been fortunate enough to work with remarkable colleagues and organizations in some of the world's most recognized and historic venues. He is a professor of voice at the University of Victoria, which is where I reached him, and I began by asking him how he's doing these days. I am fortunate, if I may say. I am fortunate because I'm, well, dare I say it, I'm in Victoria, but we all have to cross our fingers wherever we are. But I'm grateful that I'm in the sunshine, in the place that I'm familiar with, and that I'm I'm teaching at the university at the moment, and we've just finished off, and I'm very grateful to the fact that we've been able to maintain our classes and maintain face-to-face singing lessons and juries and all this stuff to shed a little bit of light uh, into the situation. So how am I? I'm I'm actually doing very well. I, I The alternative isn't an option. No. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. And what kinds of things have you been doing both in your teaching and in your performing uh, career well, this year? Indeed, it's been an unusual year, as you know. And and um, I'm, dare I say it, I'm envious of the people who are musicians, who are, you know, uh, we are all fighting for what we need to do in order to cope and how to do it. We do whatever we have to do. But as far as those who are producing content and those who are maintaining their artistic presence, uh, it's crucial. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm trying to do my part amongst also teaching. And so really my my sense of achievement at this point is being is finding that I'm able to facilitate the achievement of students who want to get out to go and do it right. and make sure they are still ignited to want to do that rather than myself. And yet I've been very grateful for certain opportunities, like with Confluence, to sing some Beckwith recently. You know, there was a St. Matthew Passion that was done recently with Catherine Whitney, and uh, she needed an evangelist and, and a continuo and a Christ and I was thrilled to be able to facilitate that here. It's nice having repertoire under your under your arm because mm-hmm. when said you just rattle off the Saint Matthew Passion Evangelist, you go, I, I can do that. <laughs> I, can, I, I can't fix a furnace, but I can I can sing the Saint Matthew Passion. <laughs> so uh, so I've had some occasions with Pacific Opera as well to be able to sing do some Christmas concerts with my wife Anna. And um, but really, the school has been where my focus has been to make sure we're in a safe environment and that others can be preparing for the future. That's been my sense of achievement recently. So two questions around that. What's your I've been uh, inspired by the students that I'm working with and um, and lifted up by their enthusiasm and their philosophical (laughs) Uh, outlooks. <laughs> and um, it, it really has given me strength. And I, I wonder if that's a universal thing. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your your interactions with the students this year and and what their view of the future is. 
but I think, but, but that's the, that's where I'm grateful. Oops. Uh, it's, it's all so overwhelming this time. And it's all hit everyone so fast that it takes you a moment to realize what's really going on. And in the meantime, I don't, I, what I'm noticing and what I'm inspired by is that students say, well, yeah, that's great, but, but when's my lesson? Um, I, yes, no, I, I, so I have to find a job. I can't go home. I'm not sure about this, but when's my lesson? <laughs> and, That's great. And, then, and then I say, well, uh, it's on Thursday and you better have that Bach in shape. And they go, oh, not Bach again. Okay. <laughs> I better go to work and get it together. And they tend to, so I've been truly inspired by, by the students saying, well, in a way, what else am I going to do right now? except get to work yeah. and those who are struggling to get to work are inspired by their schoolmates to get to work so that then transfers itself onto me and i realize gosh i better get to school quick because because there's somebody who's putting the energy into getting to school against all odds to come and do their work yeah uh so I think that it, it, it perpetuates itself. It, it re-energizes within like an electric car. You put on the brakes and you get energy. <laughs> um, I think there's something about that, renewal mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And the big, the big point of it is to be ready for when the lights come back on and, and to not lose your momentum. And, yeah. and how you deal with this time is what defines how you're going to be at the end of it. So I'm... Uh, you know, yes, I'm very inspired by all of them. I, I, I get the sense, really, it comes from them. I don't see them going, oh, the school's in such good shape. Everything's so great. I'm inspired. Right. They're finding it from the music inside themselves to then shed light in the environment that makes you want to make sure that it's safe for them to come and do their work rather than the other way around. And um, your professional life, I, I I noticed that you did a few things for Pacific Opera Victoria, something that you would normally do in front of an audience. And I know of you as as a, a brilliant communicator with live audiences. And I'm can you talk about how it felt to to do a recital with that with that vital piece missing? Well, it's it's you know it's that it's that desperate thing that. Um... Richard Burton used to talk about, about the, the, you know, whether live theater or movies is the true art, you know, and he and Elizabeth Taylor used to have these vicious conversations about <laughs> this. Um, they are two different things. To be performing for a space and public in real time, in real acoustic, requires a different level of, of energy, of, of artistic and vocal and physical energy how you see distance. It's like being on Broadway. It's like theater. It's live theater. That is, that's a different technique of getting it out. When you are playing for microphones and cameras, I, and I've been struggling with this because I've been watching my colleagues also struggling with it. We want mm -hmm. to do our work, but does it transfer that well onto the camera, which is where one wants to find uh, simplicity and, and delicacy of movement. And it's, it's another whole level. So I, I wish I'd had more time with it to be really grappling with what it is to hone the technique of playing for the camera, you know? So, and, and I think we're all trying to get our feet with this M money helps if you have a really good, you know, uh, although a good cell phone these days doesn't seem to harm at all. It, it can do everything you need it to do. Yeah. But I think, I think for me, I'm just, I'm struggling with that 
that difference of how do we maintain the, the inherent spark that, go, that, that occurs between people in a larger setting rather than uh, the, the, the different, more, more delicate spark, I guess, that occurs within just a tight little group of people. The true art is within itself. And I think that's a huge, you know, the, the juxtaposition of understanding what the true art is versus certainly for, well, I'll say for all performers, performing with that bigger sense that allows, you know, for, for healthy performance, for a dancer to leap high for real people, for a singer to let the note go. That creates a, a, a different element of, of physicality and in a way growth and development and sustainability. The juxtaposition of these two is a very delicate thing and I, I'm excited for this time that allows us to, to investigate that, but I would hate to think that one starts to supersede the other. Right. That we, we don't keep finding the sense of release and physical uh, and, and personal presence for a big space because we're bringing it down, trying to make it right for this environment. Yeah. And spontaneity too. Well, exactly. That, I mean, yeah. when I think about Selena, my teacher, she always used to say, as soon as you got caught up in doing it technically, she'd go, make it human, dear, make it human. <laughs> and in great. order to make you understand what that was, she'd be playing at the piano and she'd start to fall off the piano bench. <laughs> and you'd go, oh! And she'd go, that's it, dear, much better. Come on, give us more of that. <laughs> uh, and that was the spontaneity that I that I'm always struggling with between the learned and the improvised sure. and that's I think the sense about ensuring that you keep making it human and I so I think that's the big the opportunity we have at the moment absolutely yeah 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 I must say that's one thing that I miss uh, I miss so much about concert giving but um one of the things in particular is you know you can you can do these online programs and and put them together and knit them together and put commentary together and everything. But there's no replacement for in the middle of a concert, something may happen that you are going to respond to in the moment, uh, whether it's musical or extra musical that we lose when we plan, <laughs> you know, when we plan these digital events, because we're not in the same room together and we're not breathing the same air. And, and it's just, we're not experiencing it in the same way, in a way. And yet, and that's where it gets difficult because those moments online become forever. Yeah. So you have to be willing to accept that your mistakes, that your the stuff that makes you human, is now forever. Yes. <laughs> I, I I remember I remember being in San Francisco recording with the American box soloists, and I I I threw in an ornament. It was one of my first time sessions of, of recording on it on a high level and Jeffrey Thomas uh, stopped the whole proceeding went click 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 with a little box you know and a little voice came through the speaker and he said oh Ben do you that ornament do you really want to do that <laughs> I thought well I, I was just trying to be musical I was just he said um yeah remember this is forever um and he said he said, I, I know what you were trying to do and what you want to do, but I think that given the nature of the music, you're, you're, you might want to not want to make those choices in this medium necessarily. And I really appreciated his point. It didn't mean you couldn't do them, but yeah. because that was forever and becoming this document 
And this is a long time ago, right? Yes. Now documents are becoming the live performance that's live, but people still can edit out live performances, and that's the thing that goes to the public. Yeah. So yeah. I think we, we indeed, what's nice about the arts at the moment is that really all of our blemishes are being just put out there to say, yes, we can craft this well, but yes, we are also human, and, and here's what I give you today. Yeah. I, I invite you in with me today. And I think that's, again, a, a gift from all of this time. Well, speaking of that, you uh, you gave us a tremendous gift by performing a vowels by John Beckwith for the John Beckwith songbook, which is being re-aired in May. We, we, uh, we're going, we've decided at Confluence to do a May festival, and we're going to re-air each of our shows from this year, actually nine of them. Um, and, uh, and so I wonder if, you know, just in advance of that, if you could talk a little bit about the, the circumstances, I, I imagine that they were, they were hurried and they were, you know, complicated, <laughs> but what were, what were the circumstances around that recording? Well, number, I mean, there's COVID times. It's like traveling now. If you're going to travel, you have to tick a lot of boxes. Yes. <laughs> um, and so I was, I mean, I, it wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have, uh, Robert Holliston because I had assigned it to a, to a grad student, uh, just a couple of years ago and Robert and him were friends and Robert came in and learned it. And we had the equipment at the school as well. Right. We had the keyboards. One doesn't just have those instruments necessarily, but I was glad to be part of the school and we were able to use them and but also use the space. We had to actually apply to use the space uh, because of an external musician from the school, cleaning protocols, booking protocols, um, all this stuff. So the one thing that we had to just rely on is that we both knew it well enough to come at it with only uh, limited time to actually be together to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, to realize that there's no way this is going to be perfect because we have no time, but that would be the wrong reason to not carry on. I think that especially the nature of avowals itself is a is an exchange of of emotions going on between two people and a, and a journey of a split existence, a, a split experience of what you really think in art and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so... It would be love. I mean, again, it would be lovely that one had the mental capacity to be sleeping with it forever and come on and do the whole thing staged and ready to go. That day is still coming, Larry. We'll talk about that in the future. <laughs> That's great. But in the meantime, I think what I valued so much from it was that I had a limited time to really throw myself back into singing and in and in making music with somebody. And then I was going to have to get out and who knows the next time I can do this. Right. So right there was a thing of just saying, you know what? I'm throwing this all to the wind. Robert's going to play what he plays. I do what I do. We'll find our moments to gather. And it's like my mother used to say, if you can't be clever, be colorful. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, it was, it was a great, it was a great uh, contribution to that celebration and, and uh, so many people commented on it and, it and it was a great foil for all of the other things that were on the program as well. 
But I, um, I thought it was a brilliant program and the way that your daughter was being the MC of the whole thing and all these extraordinary people coming together and these young artists and, and the interviews with your dad. What an unbelievable testament. So I was very grateful to be asked. And that piece, indeed, I've known it for a long time and I'm, 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 I'm starting to get it, Larry. I'm starting to get it. <laughs> um, what's, uh, last question, what's, um, what's ahead for you in terms of summer plans and... Uh, I know you're, you have personal commitments and family commitments and professional commitments. And I think we all, we, you know, life as a conductor friend of mine said, the trouble with life is it's just so daily. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so indeed you, you wake up and you start, you, you just, you, you start. Uh, but in this case, I'm, in particular, I'm looking forward to some summer programs that I'm involved in to, again, be teaching in whatever way. Some, the Victoria Conservative Music uh, summer program is going to be face-to-face, but only locals here. So it's a okay. island, those who attend, those that teach, there's no virtual, so it's the conservatories allowed the thing to happen. Uh, Opera Nuova in Edmonton, I believe, is going to be going face-to-face, and again, it's going to a big bubble. I'm involved with Richard Margison's summer program in Montreal, uh, virtually, and Orford is hopefully going to happen as well. So I'm I'm very much involved in that. But the performance side on my own side, I'm uh, I'm I'm happy to just be in a way. I'm I'm happy to take a moment to regroup and think about indeed the next step. And I'm thinking about repertoire I want to be doing. And indeed, I'm just going to keep trying to reach out, keep my chops up, and uh, and prepare the way for the next uh, stage. So I, I, you know, any solid plans? I'm not sure that you know what's that line when 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 we make plans, God laughs. I I think it's just about I'm I'm grateful for anything that will come along, and I'm happy to start up the conversation again to say anybody thought about uh, you know avowals too. <laughs> You know that Confluence Concerts is started and uh, as, it, partly as a result of you and a, as a, a result of our connection and it's about as a result of your open-minded approach to programming and and music making. So uh, there, you always have a standing invitation here uh, for any for any future programs and uh, and I think some willing colleagues that would uh, that would love to make music with you. I'm beyond grateful because indeed I know we talked about this a lot when when um, Mask Theater was out and that whole the Randy Newman we did and the whole thing about fusing styles and energies and and having watched Colin Ainsworth recently do these staged song cycles with Pacific Opera, it's it's what Rena Sharon had been talking about from the day one with song fire and mm. and art song theater and and anything that that fuses the the human experience together. And doesn't silo, and so I'm I'm just so grateful to see this kind of stuff happening. And you are at the forefront, Mr. Beckwith, Maestro Beckwith. So I'm I'm thrilled anytime, and thrilled to always be involved and to spend time with you. So great, nice talking to you, Ben. Larry, I I wish you were here. I wish I was there. I wish we could be together, <laughs> wherever. But we are. Yes. But we are. Thank you. Thank you. Tenor Benjamin Butterfield from Victoria. It's always such a treat to visit with him. And you can hear Ben's performance with keyboardist Robert Holliston of Avowals when we rebroadcast the John Beckwith Songbook 
as part of our Confluence May Festival on Tuesday, May 18th at 7 p.m. on the Confluence YouTube channel. That brings this episode of The Fuse to a close. My thanks to Stephen Hyten, Anais Kelsey-Verdecchia, Patricia O'Callaghan, and Benjamin Butterfield for their contributions to the show. For information about Confluence Concerts, please visit our website at www.confluenceconcerts.ca. And to listen to past episodes of The Fuse, search us up on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. My name is Larry Beckwith. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and I look forward to bringing you more interviews and features in a few weeks' time. Until then, stay well. Bye for now.